0: What day movie. heaven extended its irresistible arm and held the cleaver of faith in its fist and it cut us off? Uh, radio died in the fall of
1: 1953, I suppose, that last season. To give you an example of how grim it was out in 1959, they removed suspense from the West Coast to New York in order to save $80 in sound effects technicians.
2: Well, I saw it, sadly enough, just dying, uh, you know, like leaves falling from a tree in the autumn. uh, Program after program were taken off the air. When
3: radio died, and I mean it died with a big bang, it just died out there in California. They tried to move it back to New York.
0: And it had to die suddenly and violently because the networks could no longer sustain it because they intended to go into the new medium television. If they had tried to Hold on to radios they might have for seasonal season interest to
4: television. made it. Elliot Lewis. I believe there's a place for experimental drama in radio. The play you're going to hear is such an experiment. It's debatable whether it's too personal an experience. I don't think it is. Some of you may be offended, some revolted, some excited by the sharing of this experience. At all events, since it is an experiment, and since we'll be dealing with those strange depths in a man's mind called his subconscious, we ask your attention.
5: Are you in the clear?
2: Unit 99 to KMA 907. Unit 99,
5: Sergeant Meredith, 909, in service. August 1957. Driving east on Route 50 from West Sacramento in a 1957 Ford Skyliner. The convertible costs roughly $3,000, has a Y-block Thunderbird V8 engine and 212 horsepower. It's got something else, too. Car radios have become standard. U.S. Radio Magazine will soon state that 55% of all peak listening came from cars. Auto rating measurements are underway, but still ineffective. Sacramento police. The job
4: of a police officer is your protection. The cases you hear on this radio program are real cases. The police are real, the victims and
5: the criminals are real. Radio stations are having a good year. Total radio revenue is expected to increase 3% year over year
4: make no mistake about
5: it. a median station in 1957 is expected to make nearly $120,000 in revenue with a profit of $11,500 urban stations are enjoying higher numbers thanks to higher populations and more national ad spots the local sponsors are paying 87% of all ad costs and programming accounts for 33% of all expenses
6: Around Dodge City and in the Territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of Gunsmoke.
5: Gunsmoke is Dramatic Radio's highest-rated show, with its Saturday afternoon repeat broadcast attracting even more listeners than its Sunday evening primetime installment. Somewhere between four and five million people are still tuning in from their homes. And factoring car and transistor radios, nearly 10 million people are listening.
6: story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that
0: man Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Life and the world.
5: Meanwhile, Major David Simmons just piloted the first hot-air balloon to reach over 100,000 feet of altitude, skirting the outer rim of the atmosphere. With the experiment lasting more than 24 hours, it's the precursor to manned space flights. On August 28th, the Major appeared on Life and the World over NBC Radio, in conjunction with the September 2nd issue of Life magazine.
0: Good evening, this is Frank Blair. Tonight, from out of space, a journey no man has taken.
2: I could see a unearthly purple, violet, a very deep color, one I'd never seen before. Man has
0: reached his slim and scientific hand deep into outer space. Last week, Air Force scientist Major David C. Simons, age 35, set a new record when he became the first man ever to go higher than 100,000 feet in a balloon. Working in behalf of a project for the Holloman Air Development Center, Air Research and Development Command, U.S. Air Force, Major Simons made this historic and scientifically invaluable flight. You'll see his face in a self-portrait, which is featured on the cover of the current issue of Life magazine, and you'll hear his voice now on life and the world. Major Simons, will you background the purpose of this flight? This flight
7: was a test of a new high altitude research platform for studying human reactions at the 100,000 foot level for 24 hours
2: and even longer. What did it look like up there? It was a truly beautiful sight and a sight that man had not seen before, particularly during the sunrise and sunset period.
5: The rocket age, the Cold War, integration and civil rights are all upon us, while radio drama
2: hangs on for dear life. For a few minutes, I could see a unearthly purple-violet, a very deep color.
5: Tonight, never we'll step into a portal to a time with Elvis Presley, sky, Buddy Holly, and Fibber McGee and Molly. Which didn't and along the way, we might just remember where we've been, so we know where we're going. What
0: sensations did you experience?
5: Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 143. My name is James Scully. Tonight we begin a miniseries on radio in the world in the fall of 1957. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening song is Michael Silverman's beautiful piano rendition of the English ballad, Scarborough Fair. It was perhaps made most famous by Simon and Garfunkel, in 1957, the duo recorded their first single, Hey Schoolgirl, which rose all the way to number 49 on the U.S. charts. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com groups slash the And the first eight chapters of Burning Gotham are out everywhere you can get a podcast and at burninggotham.com. It was a 2022 Tribeca Film Festival audio selection. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash the wallbreakers.
8: The show, uh, as Fibber McGee and Molly, as
7: a half-hour radio show, went off the air in about 1954, didn't 53 it? 53 or 54, I think. Yeah. and then we did a 15-minute show across the board for one year, and then we did Monitor for about three years. Yeah. In fact, when Marion became ill in 1960, in February, this cancer was discovered, and we were just, uh, the contract was made out for three more years of Monitor at that time. We never finished signing it that was one of the great losses to radio,
5: certainly. But you were with NBC for all those years, weren't you, Jim?
7: We were with NBC for over 30 years.
5: On June 1st, 1957, after three seasons as a five-a-week serial, Jim and Marion Jordan joined NBC's Monitor in short segments. The Monitor service had been airing for two years, offering NBC affiliates a full weekend block of available programming. In New York, on Sunday, September 1st, NBC's WRCA began airing Monitor at 12 p.m. That day, Fibber and Molly told a version of their origin story.
3: My, it does bring back a lot of memories to go through these old newspapers from out in the garage, doesn't it, McGee? Yeah,
9: they sure go back a lot farther than I figured. In fact, there's some at the bottom of the pile that I must have brought over here from my parents' home. This old yellow one, look at it. That's a real collector's item. That's the one that's got our birth announcements in it.
3: Heavenly days, really? Yeah,
9: right here. You know, you may not believe it, but I can actually remember those days in the hospital right after I was born.
3: Well, I have a vivid memory of the first time I met you, dearie. You do? Sure. We were lying there in our cribs in the maternity ward. I remember I'd been dozing off and on all day. You're that new Molly Driscoll, ain't you, sis? Well, my last name's Driscoll, but I don't think they've given me a first name yet.
9: Yes, they have. Your name's Molly. I heard my mother mention it when I was in there today. They're still calling me Infant McGee. But I think they're going to pick Fibber for my first name. They better be making up their minds. I'm three days old, you know. How old are you?
3: I'll be three days at one o'clock this afternoon. And I can already lift my
9: head up. Can you? Shucks, I could do that yesterday. I'm trained to become a great athlete, you know. You are awfully muscular. Nine pounds, six ounces. It's not a bit of fat on me. I can even grab a hold of the top of the crib and pull myself up. You want to see me do it? Oh, I don't believe you can do it. Sure I can. Just watch.
3: McGee, look out. <laughs> That's the way it happens. You fell out of the crib right on your head.
9: Well, it just so happens, Molly, that I didn't fall out of that crib at all. You must be thinking of Leroy Bodenheimer who was in the crib on the other side of you. I remember it all very well.
3: My that Leroy Bodenheimer is a real charmer, isn't he, McGee? Ah, oh, he doesn't do anything
9: but lie there and bubble. And he sure is a scrawny little runt. I bet he don't weigh over six pounds.
3: Five twelve is what he told me. And he's gonna be four days old this evening.
9: I just turned three myself. I'm already up to 9'6". I can lift my head up, too.
3: So can I. I've been able to do that for almost two hours.
9: I bet you can't grab a hold of the top of the crib and pull yourself up like I can. Do you want to see me do it?
3: Oh, I don't believe you can do it. Sure I can. Just watch. There. How about that? Heavenly days, you did it. You're my hero. I'll never look at Leroy Bodenheimer again.
9: And that's the way it was, Molly. I was prone to athletics and feats of strength even then.
3: Well, it might have been that way. At any rate, you just reminded me of something. I need your help to get the top off that jar of pickles I bought today.
9: Yeah, I'd like to give you a hand, kiddo, but I'm having that trouble with my back again. You know, I think that Leroy Bodenheimer screws them jar tops on tight down at that grocery store just to embarrass me anyway. In
5: 1958, tests found that Marion had a terminal form of cancer. She continued to work as long as possible. The couple had vignettes on monitor until September of 1959. Fibber, Mickey, and Molly were the subject of Breaking Walls, episode 103.
2: We lost Marion in 1961, and then there were no more new um, Fibber and Molly performances on
7: radio. No, couldn't be. I believe the fact that they were not run, and that I didn't, after Marion passed away, I didn't break my back trying to keep it alive. I wanted mm-hmm. to do things, but I never could do what I wanted to do. And I think the fact that that went on for all these years, which is about 10 years now, and, and the shows hadn't been done for since 1953, actually. Mm-hmm. The reason that all that has stayed away all this time is is what's making it, well, uh, popular is the only word, now. I think that's what's bringing this resurgence at this point. In other words, if I would have kept going all the time, maybe there wouldn't be this interest in them now. I, don't know. I have that feeling about them anyway. Well, I think the quality of the broadcasts stands up.
5: Although Jim and Marion and Jordan spent virtually their entire careers at NBC, they did guest star on the February 3rd, 1949 episode of CBS's Suspense. Here's a snippet from their dramatic appearance.
2: keep going as long as you're breathing you keep going even when it looks like there's no way out you hang on by your toenails we poked up and down those black valley streets that twist and turn and sometimes wind up in dead ends Ellie stopped crying after a while she slumped down with her head rolling on the seat back limp as a rag doll with the stuffing leaked out it took a long time but it had to come to an end I saw the bulk of the house looming up. There was light sneaking around the edges of the blinds up in Annie's room. She wasn't asleep after all. She'd be sitting up in bed, maybe plastering red stuff on her fingers and dreaming about the date with Mike. Bud's room was dark. He'd be wrapped in covers like in a cocoon and dreaming. Whatever boys dream, I couldn't remember. pulled up to the concrete walk I'd poured with my own hands before there was any Annie or Bud, and I cut the lights. In a second or two, my eyes got used to the dark. I could make out the high head Jelly planted around the place and the roof rising up beyond it. Out, missus. Face the house. Now, you, Max, slide out the same side, stand beside her. Walk to the door. Slow and no funny business. I'm right behind you. Joe Aunt Ellie. Ellie. Mm-hmm. Ellie, honey, you all right? All
10: right, indeed. Smacked flat on my face on a concrete walk and you falling on me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with her. <laughs> That's my girl. Oh, well,
10: don't just stand there. Help me up.
2: Here you are. Oh,
10: I've got to get in the house before the kids come busting out here. I won't have them mixed up in this.
2: Well, how's he doing, boys? Got him through the gun hand on the right shoulder. See? A <laughs> lucky shot copper. If
8: you weren't lucky, you'd all be cold meat now.
2: Maybe. Matrick, isn't it, Uncle Joe? That's him. Miranda scribed him to you, eh? The old girl didn't miss a trick. <laughs> she even knew you were taking the back way home. You left a clear trail, Uncle Joe. Slick work. I had to get him out of the car before the fireworks started. Ellie didn't stand a chance. She helped, though. Ellie catches on quick. How bad? A mean guy like Matrick. Make him think you don't want to do something, and he'll break his neck doing it. I let on. I was trying to run out of gas. That got us to Bill's. Then we both made out. There was no sense going to Miranda's, so we got bullied into going to Miranda's. It was a 1,000 to 1. She'd run off at the mouth about the brush fires and scare him into hiding out. After that, all Ellie had to do was turn on the hysterics. He was dead set on coming here. (laughs) Bright boy, like I said. Bright enough. You did all right, too, Mike. I was watching the rearview mirror all the time you were tailing us, but you never showed. You knew I was there, though. When one officer starts double-talking another officer,
8: he wants to know why. (laughs) Officer, double-talk. You never said a thing to him except that
11: I'd bought some place out here. Yeah,
2: the Charles place. Poor old man Charles. (laughs) In a tough spot and moving out for good. Well, What's wrong with that? Matrick, didn't anybody ever tell you it wasn't smart to take up with strangers? Maybe I'd better introduce myself. The name's Charles. Joe Charles. Detective. Homicide. Tonight I was off duty and was just taking my wife to a movie. Thank you, Febber McGee and Molly, for a splendid performance.
10: Why, thank you. Yeah,
2: thanks very much, bud. We're not used to doing a show with a gun stuck in our backs. <laughs> no. <laughs> We're used to doing them with Jack Benny breathing down our necks.
10: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and vice versa. <laughs> <laughs> but that guy over there, he he looks familiar.
10: Why, dearie, that's Mr. Wilcox.
2: Old Waxy himself? The guy that sells Johnson's wax on our Tuesday show?
10: Not Waxy on Thursdays, dearie. Sparky.
2: Sparky, eh? <laughs> Well, what do you know? Hey, Junior!
10: Hello, Fibber. Hello, Molly. Hello, Mr. Wilcox.
8: Say, you two were terrific tonight. Uh, Tell me, did you drive over from Wistful Vista? Uh Uh-oh.
2: Molly, I'm afraid to answer that.
8: Because if you did, I hope your car had auto light resistor spark plugs. (laughs) See what I mean? And listen, pal, (laughs) if I were you, I'd stop and see an auto light serviceman on the way home. That old bulls Listen, Waxy,
2: I mean, uh, Sparky, you don't have to tell me where to stop. I stopped on the way over. Why, those masterful miracles of manufacturing magnificence... Oh, now,
10: McGee, McGee, that's Mr. Wilcox's story. Let him tell it.
8: Well, what Fibber means is that auto light parts and orig- are original factory parts. Auto light parts and service and your car go together like McGee and Molly, Hap and Harlow, Amos and Andy. So when you replace worn-out parts, visit your auto light service station or the dealer who sells your make of car and ask for original factory parts and service. Leading cars use them all... Autolite makes them all. Be right. Get Autolite parts and service.
1: The great period of radio was from the time when I very fortuitously and didn't know this at the time, obviously happened to fall into New York, from that to the war. From 1937, 38 really, through the war. It was mm-hmm. only seven years. Mm-hmm. The golden age of radio.
5: If you'd have tuned into WCBS in New York on Sunday, September 1st, 1957, you'd have heard news reports at the tops of most hours. Concerts and other music programs filled the dial between 11.30 a.m. and 4.00 p.m. At 4.05, the CBS radio workshop signed on with the network's first dramatic offering of the day. Next up was suspense. In 1957, William N. Robeson was in the middle of a three-year run as the director. CBS had found multiple sponsorship for the series in late 1956. Ten months later, it was airing Sundays at 4.35 from WCBS in New York, and at 4 p.m. from KNX in Los Angeles. By 1957, Robeson had more than 20 years of experience writing, producing, and directing radio shows.
2: I was hoping you might trace your career. You were a drama student, and they didn't teach radio drama in in those days any more than they taught television drama, uh, say, back in 1938 or something like that. So what were the the events that led you into radio then after uh, having graduated from Yale?
1: I was broke. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of people have told us that. There wasn't any uh, place to go. I'd been a picture (laughs) writer of, of very, very little success in Hollywood. Then the president closed the banks, President Roosevelt just after his inauguration in 1933. I went to a party at a friend's house and uh, a fellow I just met says, I understand you're a writer. I said, yeah, I'm a writer. I said, what can you write? I said, anything. <laughs> That's what you say when you're hungry. <laughs> That's right. And he said, can you write radio? I said, sure. I didn't tell him I had nothing but a contempt for radio because I was a picture writer. So we'll go see this fellow, Don. So I went downtown and met this fellow. This fellow had a derby hat on. His name was Don Lee, and he owned the Cadillac Distributorship in California. And he also owned KFRC San Francisco, KHJ Los Angeles, and a whole string up the belly. Yeah, Don Lee Network. I remember Don that. Don Lee Network. Right? right. And he took me to lunch at a health food restaurant. With Smiley Wiley, his sales manager, always Carnation Wiley, we call him, who always wore Carnation in his buttonhole, and he said, "Young man, uh, what can you offer the radio?" And I said, "Well, I think I just finished this assignment at Universal Studios." I said, "Well, I think a dramatization of World War flyers." I almost said World War I, but we didn't say that in those days. <laughs> yeah. World War Flyers. I think I'd be, there's Frank Luke the Balloon Buster, there's Von Richthofen, there's, uh, oh, so many of them, and all the boys in the Lafayette am just off the top of the head. And he said, that sounds very interesting. You want to come in tomorrow and start writing? See if we like you and you like us? And I said, sure. So I went in with the brashness of 26 and seven years old and uh, wrote it, and it was on the air. I never knew how much money I was being paid until I got a check. And then I found out, it was $46.50 a week.
5: The September 1st episode was called The Man from Tomorrow. It starred Frank Lovejoy and Joan Banks. At the time, they'd been married for 17 years.
6: Suspense. And the producer of radio's outstanding theater of thrills... The master of mystery and adventure, William N. Robeson.
1: Those who know about such things tell us that an engine delivers little more than 50 percent of the energy potential of its fuel. The rest is dissipated in waste. Waste motion, waste energy, gases, ash. The same can be said of man, has been said in fact. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. If an average man were trained to use his faculties to the utmost, could be a superman if a superior man were so trained what could he not accomplish the answer is implied in the upcoming story listen listen then as mr and mrs frank lovejoy star in man from tomorrow the last radio play written by the late irving reese which begins in exactly one minute
0: american folklore is filled with legends about men who were as tough as nails like the one about pecos bill who went out for a walk one day Unfortunately, a big ten-foot rattler crossed his path. I say, unfortunately for the rattler. You see, Bill was a mighty fair fighter. Why he gave that rattler the first three bites just to make things even. Then he waded into that reptile and he everlastingly thrashed the poison out of him. By and by, that old rattler yelled for mercy and admitted that when it come to fighting, Bill started where he left off. Yes, that was Pecos Bill, a legendary American. Folklore belongs to every nation's legendary past, and I guess we Americans have our share of some tall ones. Like the one about... (laughs) But we'll have to save that one
6: for the next time we travel your way. See you then. And now... Man from Tomorrow, starring Mr. and Mrs. Frank Lovejoy. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense.
12: Even in these days of so-called full employment, you'd be surprised how few job opportunities come up for an ex-jet jockey. So it was with more than passing interest that I read this ad while I was scanning the classified section of the Sunday paper. It said, wanted ex-jet pilot. Unmarried without family obligations must be in perfect health and prepared for rigid tests. Successful candidate will receive good pay and be given opportunity to contribute to daring experiment and world betterment. Apply Tuesday, 10 a.m., Science Associates, 126 West Street. Well, Science Associates, you just got yourself a boy. It turned out there were quite a few boys with the same idea. By 10 o'clock Tuesday morning, nearly 50 of us were crowded in a windowless air-conditioned room in the windowless ultra-modern building of Science Associates. Oh, hi. Hi, Major. Well, hi, Randy. It's been a long time. Yeah. Some of the faces were familiar, guys that had been in the Air Force with me in Korea and afterward. We sat there and waited. An hour, two hours, nothing happened.
0: I don't know about the rest of you guys, but this place is beginning to give me claustrophobia. I'm getting out. Open that door. Hey! Hey, it's locked! Hey, we're locked in
12: here! Even before this had a chance to sink in, another door opened on the far side of the room. A guy with a white mask on his face came in, carrying a Thompson submachine gun. Hit the giant! Everybody flattered on the floor except me. I made a dash for the man in the mask, but he disappeared as quickly as he'd come. Hey, Major. Major, how come you didn't hit the floor? You tired of living? Well, he was shooting blanks. He was shooting blanks. Couldn't bl- you see that? There weren't any bullets chipping anything. Besides, I knew it was a gag from the way he held that machine gun. When those babies are loaded with live ammo, you've got to fire them from the waist. Well, I don't like this. Come on, guys. Let's crash the door and get out of this rat oh, trap. Oh, save it, on, Randy. That up. won't do you any good. That door's as thick as a bank vault. And then something else. Thick, black, acrid smoke pouring out of the air conditioning vents. And a sound from somewhere of an airplane diving. Every pilot remembers with horror the smell of burning oil from a plane out of control. It hit us way back and deep down, and some of the guys got panicked. And then the blowers reversed, and the smoke was sucked out quickly.
0: Attention, please. A
12: loudspeaker cut in from nowhere.
0: For the past two hours, you have been under close observation as a necessary part of this test. You were warned in advance the test would be rigid. As you file out past the guard, you will receive a token compensation for your time and discomfort. We now ask you all to leave, except the man who ran for the gunner. The door is now open...
12: Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, well, well, Major, looks like you got the job. Also, looks like I'm going to shove it right back in their faces. Well, I don't blame you. Well, so long. So long, Randy. Take it easy. For a moment, I was alone in the empty room. And then, an inner door opened. And I wasn't so sure I wanted to shove the job in their faces. Not in this face, anyway.
13: Your name, please.
12: Wow. Wow. <laughs> I hardly expected to find a blonde at the bottom of this. You will come with me, please. Well, I'll do nothing of the sort. Now, don't give me orders, Blondie. I want to see the guy responsible for this, and then I'm getting out of here.
13: I take it you have lost interest in contributing to world
12: betterment. Oh, yes, that's what it said in the ad. Well, whatever your lofty purpose, I don't like cold-blooded cruelty.
13: Unfortunately, we cannot allow personal feelings to interfere with our objectives.
12: Well, then your objectives are wrong. You
13: will be better able to judge that when you know what they are.
12: Well, I don't think I'm interested. And if I may indulge a personal feeling Callousness is unattractive enough in a man But in an attractive girl Neither your feelings
13: nor mine will matter in this project, Major I believe you were addressed It
12: was just plain Mr. Mr. Kentman The war's been over for some time, Miss... Uh... Dr. Frost uh, That's appropriate I beg your pardon? Oh, nothing, nothing I sometimes mutter to myself The last thing I said to you, Doctor, is that the war is over If it is possible
13: for you to unlock your quite superior intelligence from emotional reactions common to schoolgirls and housewives, my senior colleague Professor Baird and I will attempt to convince you on the only basis that should appeal to the mature mind. Facts.
12: Well, you go ahead and try, but I doubt you'll be successful.
5: One thing that was most certainly successful, CBS's handling of radio during the oncoming TV era. A large part of this was because of Chairman William Paley's belief in the medium. By 1957, he'd been head of CBS for 30 years. At the CBS company convention in November of 1957, upper management predicted that radio was becoming fashionable again. A year later, Paley had this to say while winning an award.
4: If I had learned anything about programming and personalities on the air by the 1930s, I think it was that you had to pull things in out of the blue sky. In other words, to hope and expect to find something somewhere without having it introduced to you formally. Now, radio and television are both, as we know, medium able to make a unique blend of information with entertainment. The new supplying function that radio could perform was evident very early to everyone. Yet it had a fairly tough time to get itself established, not with the public, but with itself and with its competition. The past always seems a little crazy when you view it through the reducing glass of time, and perhaps the early days of broadcasting were more than just a little crazy. But they were exciting, and they were days of discovery. Like all discoverers, here and there you found splendid new harbors, and here and there you ran shamefully on a mud bank, and more dangerously, onto rocks. Lots of things that seem funny now were distinctly not funny when they happened. This is the way it has always been, and this is the way I think it's always going to be. Thank you and good afternoon.
6: Now, we continue with act two of Man From Tomorrow, starring Mr. and Mrs. Frank Lovejoy. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense.
12: It was a big, aseptically bare room with an uncluttered desk at one end. Behind the desk was the cartoonist conception of an egghead. A thin, bespectacled man whose eyes were so intelligently alive that I couldn't look away from them long enough to mark his other features. This was Professor Baird, keeper of the facts. You are asking yourself
11: why we limited our appeal to former jet pilots? Simple. Only one man in 10,000 was able to qualify mentally and physically for jet training. The Air Force, therefore, indirectly performed the first of our processes of elimination. Additional eliminations due to flunk-outs, mortality in training and combat... brings the total to one in 20,000. Fact. The standards we applied during the two hours in which we observed your every action and reaction... raises the mathematical incidence of your sensory acuity to approximately one in 100,000. I'm flattered. You will have greater reason to be if our experiment proves successful. You will be the only man on Earth possessed of your powers. You will be the man from tomorrow.
12: Uh, How do you propose to go about that?
11: We will first show you how we've trained other individuals. Dr. Frost, will you proceed with the demonstration?
13: Yes, Professor. Come in, Mr. Logan. Mr. Logan, have you ever been in this part of the laboratories before? No. Would you describe it, please?
11: Uh, It's a rectangular room, 40 by 20. The ceiling is... Eighteen and a half feet high. There's a desk 12 feet from me, slightly to my right. There are two people seated at it. One has just risen.
13: That will be all. Thank you, Mr. Logan.
12: Well, Mr. Kentman. Hello, it would be very impressive if any schoolboy with normal vision couldn't do as well. Agreed. But Mr. Logan is totally blind. <laughs> Looking back now, I can hardly believe my own impressions. The blind man was followed by a deaf mute and a paraplegic who'd lost all sense of touch and smell. Their demonstrations were incredible. Not
13: one of these persons possessed physical senses above the average, Mr. Kentman. The deprivation of one sense or another in the case of the blind or deaf man stimulated nature's desire to compensate for the loss.
12: But what are you trying to prove? That man
11: has powers even now that are beyond his comprehension. We wish to explore those powers. Suppose one nearly perfect man with superior sensory perception to begin with could develop the extension of his five senses to the maximum degree we've just observed. What do you think would happen? I don't know. Neither do we. But it is our conviction that this man would also acquire a new sense, a sixth sense, ...that would endow him with a power never dreamed of before. Don't you think it's a dimension worth exploring? Maybe. But how could anybody accomplish it? Training. By producing the circumstances that surround the blind man, the deaf man, the handicapped. You would have to agree to cut yourself off from the outside world for three years. You would spend six months living in a pitch-dark laboratory. You would sleep, eat, function in a world of darkness.
13: Various sound devices will be used to train and measure your hearing responses. After that, six months would be devoted to simulating the world of the deaf
11: mute, and so on. You will be paid $20,000 at the end of the three years. All the necessities of living will be provided during that time. Then a test will be made, and if our predictions are realized, you will be signed for an additional five years at $20,000 per year. Dr. Frost will be in charge of the training program.
12: Do you wish to undertake it? Well, it's uh, it's a pretty serious move. I'd like to think about it.
13: You have all the facts, Mr. Kentman. We would like a decision now.
12: You think feeling might enter into my considerations, Doctor? Is that what you're afraid of?
13: Afraid? Fear is merely an emotion, Mr. Kentman. I have learned to control all my
12: emotions. I wonder. I beg your pardon? I was muttering again, but what I meant to say is I agree to undertake the experiment. I was led into a pitch dark room, blacker than the blackest night. It was to be my home for six months. It had a bed, bathroom, closets. All I had to do was to find them. I won't waste time telling you what that was like. Just close your eyes tight and try to find your way around a room that's familiar to you and you'll get the idea. I was still stumbling around three days later when I reported for my training with Dr. Frost in the adjoining laboratory, which was even blacker, if possible. Oh, dear. Are you hurt? You wouldn't care if I broke a leg.
13: There's a chair nearby. I
12: know. I just fell over it.
13: We can begin as soon as you're settled.
12: Lucky it's so dark, I don't have to apologize for wearing my pajamas.
13: Don't you like dressing?
12: I love it when I can find my pants.
13: Today's exercise will be recognition of pure tones. Here is an example. That is 1,000 cycles, or 1,000 vibrations per second, stripped of all harmonics. Now. What would you say that was?
12: Oh, 1,100.
13: It is 1,500 cycles. Now, please tell me when you begin to hear the next tone and what the frequency
12: is. I couldn't make the slightest dent in that glacial reserve. I tried to match her at her own game for a while, but she loved it, and I'm human. Anyway, at the end of the six months, I could ramble through the whole place and never stub a toe. It was amazing how you learned to sense things in the dark and what your ears could do. 800, out. 4,500,
13: out. Good, excellent. Mr. Kentman, your threshold of hearing is 20 decibels greater than the average ear.
12: Dr. Frost, I can't see you, but do I detect a note of enthusiasm in your voice?
13: Satisfaction, perhaps, Mr. Kentman. The experiment so far... Dr.
12: Frost, have you ever let yourself go?
13: Mr. Kentman, I am not nearly so naive as you assume, nor have any of your innuendos or mumblings for the past six months escaped me. I told you in the beginning that neither your personal feelings nor mine would have any bearing on this project. You
12: haven't answered my question.
13: I am fully aware of the nature of biological stresses. In a
12: scientific way, of course.
13: What distinguishes man from the animal is his understanding of these stresses,
12: but mostly his control. Well, control is a traffic cop with a stop sign, Doctor, but eventually the traffic has to go somewhere.
13: I can understand the frustration of your masculine ego. Especially in this enforced loneliness of the experiment. Oh,
3: thank
12: you.
13: We have only begun. We have two years or more to go. The first phase is highly successful. As a scientist, I
12: am very pleased. Strange, Doc. My hearing is so good, but I have
5: yet to hear your heartbeat. George Walsh was suspense's announcer. He was also the announcer on Gunsmoke.
14: Well, I was the last voice on the format of suspense, known to my daughters in those days who were pretty small as Spooky Daddy.
5: Spooky Daddy. Oh, <laughs> did, you, did you ever use the
14: voice, like, for disciplinary purposes? Never worked. Never worked, Never worked, worked huh? Yeah. They, they laughed at you, didn't they, George? <laughs> Are today's announcers, do you think George is as good as they were back in the golden days of radio? Well, I don't think they were announcers in the same sense as they were in those days. I think today they're all doing commercials. There's hardly any such thing as a format announcer anymore, hardly any such thing as a staff announcer anymore. That's right. As a matter of fact, I remember one time when I looked into the booth to do the closing credits and the last commercial, and from Norman MacDonald, the director, I got a signal to stretch, and then from Frank Paris, the assistant director, I got a signal to hurry up, both at the same time. (laughs) Then they looked at each other and and completely... uh, Broke up, and it left me with little to do. You know, I'm awfully sorry I can't be there in person, particularly because I wanted to see Jack Crucian again.
0: (laughs) I'm sorry you're not here. I was going to give you a big hug.
14: (laughs) You know, I remember that guy from the early 1950s when he co-starred with Larry Thor on Broadway's My Beat. And let me tell you about Jack. He's such a good actor that I've known him over many, many years. And when I see him on the screen or on the stage... There's Jack Crucian, but 30 seconds later, he's got me believing that he is the doctor that lives across the hall like in Promises, Promises. You forget who he is. He sees the character he's playing. He's that good.
6: And now, we continue with Act Three of Man From Tomorrow, starring Mr. and Mrs. Frank Lovejoy, a tale well calculated to keep you in...
12: Suspense. Now that my hearing was phenomenal, they turned off my ears. They devised some newfangled earplugs, and I began six months of silence. Six months of being deaf as a doorknob. Deaf, but not quite deaf. Because I began to see sounds. To feel sounds like waves against my skin. I began to hear with my body and with my pores. Have you ever touched a sound? Have you ever seen thunder? You get so you look at sounds and almost see the waves they make trembling in the air. Have you ever tried silence? Try not saying a word not uttering a syllable for an hour, a day. I tried it for six months until all the unsaid words piled up inside my head. They clung like unborn sounds at the back of my throat. Whoever said silence is golden never felt the lump of lead that accumulates inside you. Silence. And then the six months ended. The day came when she removed the fancy earplugs and the little canyon I'd been living in widened into a continent.
13: Can you hear me now? Can you hear me? Nod to me or raise your finger when you can hear the sound of my voice.
12: I... uh, I heard you coming down the hall a minute ago.
13: Were the plugs defective?
12: Oh, no. Incidentally, I take... I take that it's all right for me to talk now.
13: Yes, of course.
12: Have I been a good boy? Have I done everything that you've wanted?
13: So much so, Mr. Ketman, that we're giving you a few days rest before we begin your training for taste and touch.
12: Well, can I do anything I want? Anything, within reason. Well, then, I'd like to have a drink. And strangely enough, I'd like to have you join me.
13: Perhaps that can be arranged.
12: that wonderful sound of the clink of glasses. And I cannot tell you how dull a piano sounds when you only look at it. You
13: missed the sound of music, then? Oh,
12: yes, music. And the sound of a woman's voice. Or maybe they're the same thing. Oh, incidentally, Dr. Frost, when I say woman, I even include female doctors. Kind of you. By the way, do you have a first name? Or are you only a title followed by Frost and followed by a long string of degrees?
13: My first name is Jessica.
12: Jessica? That's more like it. Jessica. Jessica. (laughs) Boy, after all that silence, it's good just to say a woman's name.
13: Until the experiment is completely over, Mr. Kentman, it had better remain Dr.
12: Frost. Well, okay, Dr. Jessica Frost, plus degrees. I give you a toast. To you.
13: You've been very cooperative about all this, Mr. Kenton. I want you to know that I... I really like you
12: very much. Well, now, I'm sure the experiment is a success. I've finally developed a sixth sense. Oh? I distinctly heard a lovely lady saying, I like you very much, and it couldn't possibly have been you. I rather enjoyed the touch tests. It was one area I'd never realized held such hidden possibilities. After a few months, my fingertips knew the difference between crystal and diamonds. I could tell if you had a suntan merely by touching your cheek. As for the taste tests, food suddenly became a symphony concert. Sourness had many degrees. And sweetness had a range as wide as the spectrum of a rainbow. And then all of my highly developed senses brought on a new perception, something over and beyond, and added to the rest. By the time my training was finished, I knew I had acquired a knowledge beyond knowledge.